The Business of Agriculture is brought to you by Land Trust. Have you heard how landowners are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use? Millions of outdoor recreators seek wide open spaces for bird watching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Landowners are partnering with the Recreation Access Network Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit landtrust.com/boa as in business of agriculture to learn more. That's landtrust.com/boa. Well, greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason. You already knew that. Said so in the introduction. Got a great topic for you today. We're talking about what the Russia-Ukraine situation means for American agriculture, but not just probably American agriculture, probably for global uh, agriculture or maybe even everything globally, because the what the Russia-Ukraine thing means has been talked a little bit about on all the media that you tune into. But you know what? You're going to hear a different take on this. You're going to hear from Ryan Moe. He's a member of the Business of Ag Success Group that my friend Todd and I put together almost two years ago. The Business of Ag Success Group is a network for ag professionals where we get together twice per month and uh, have discussions and guest presenters. Well, anyway, one topic came up and we're going to further it for you. And that is the issue of Ukraine-Russia. What does Russia-Ukraine mean for all of us? And we're going to dig a little deeper about some of the implications for our national security, for our industry, and even for what is going to be maybe a reset for, as I see it, uh, the global uh, power structure. Um, we're talking about this with Ryan. He is with Stone X Financial. Stone X Financial uh, out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. He can tell you more about that. But essentially, he's a commodity brokers guy. He knows a lot about the markets. Uh, Todd Thurman, uh, my co-host of the Business of Ag Success Group, who's also a frequent uh, guest here on the Business of Ag uh, podcast, is the uh, proprietor and creator of Swine Tech's Consulting. Swine Tech Consulting is a global uh, livestock consulting uh, agency, and he also is a sharp dude. So, Todd Thurman and Ryan Moe, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Damien. All right. Um, Ryan said something really smart when we were doing our prep before we hit the record button about contagion. You know, I think we can do overview about the Ukraine thing, but this one is the one that struck me, and I wrote down the word contagion. Anybody listening to this that's you know, smart is obviously heard Russia's invading Ukraine, Russia's invading Ukraine. And I shot a video and put it on social media just uh, yesterday about what this is really about. All the folks on Twitter, uh, oh, the, Putin's a madman. Uh, all the uh, the celebrities uh, recording videos singing John Lennon's Imagine uh, and uh, give peace a chance and putting on Instagram. It's like you imbecilic celebrity jackasses. What do you not comprehend? Well, he's a madman. Give peace a chance. This is very simply about invading another country to take over their resources. It's about food, fuel, and infrastructure. Food, fuel, infrastructure. I believe that that's to be the case. And Todd says, you know what? How many years has that been going on? I said, well, I know the Romans did it. All the colonial powers of Europe did it about taking over countries for food, fuel, infrastructure. And of course, uh, that's what we're talking about. So taking that as a jump off point, Mr. Todd, and then getting into Ryan's point of contagion, because the bigger concern is this doesn't stop in Ukraine. That's where we're going with this uh, toward the end of this. And we're going to again, bring it back to the people of agriculture. 
It's been going on for a million years. Why is it somehow that this is a shock to the American people? Oh, this madman, who would ever do that? Well, every dictator of every country for the last couple thousand years, right? Yeah, when I think we're we're basically shocked that uh, not everybody plays by our rules, right? So I think the the established expectations of how people are going to behave, actors are going to behave on the world stage has been sort of shifted over the last 30 years from the Western perspective, as we've gotten, you know, basically kind of uh, fat and decadent and lazy. And um, not everybody else has made that shift. And I think this is a big wake up call for a lot of the West that, um, you know, those old, you know, those old ancient rules that used to govern human behavior uh, never really went away except in your mind. Right. And so I think we're, what we're seeing here is that uh, we're not as uh, maybe civilized as we thought we were and uh, that there's still folks that are interested in, in, taking over land for strategic advantage. And I think that's what Putin is showing us. And he's not been exactly hiding the ball for the last 40 years. Um, He's basically been telling us since the Soviet Union, uh, you know, fell apart that this is what he intended to do is reconstitute, you know, the former Soviet Union. And and now we're somehow shocked that uh, he continues to make steps towards that goal. Okay, we're not, meaning the three of us are not, because we're not a bunch of imbecilic Hollywood celebrities that hang out in our bungalow and uh, record Instagram videos about uh, John Lennon music. And and I guess it's because I think that most of the people that get paid uh, to be celebrities have never really even, generally most of them haven't even graduated from high school. And apparently they've never taken a history class. This doesn't shock any of us three, because as you said, this has been programmed. I think Putin came into power in 94. The Soviet Union broke up around 90 to 92. Soviet Union was dismantled. So that's 30 plus years ago. And I believe he came into power in 94. So he's going on you know, three decades in power. And I believe, like you said, not hiding the ball. I think it was in 94 when he said that the greatest travesty of the 20th century was the dismantling of the Soviet Union. And it was his intention to reassemble it. And so this is not, like you said, any surprise to a thinking person that actually knows history. Right. And it's, you know, if people keep calling it folly and, you know, I posted on social media about, I thought it was, you know, calling Putin a madman. I mean, there's plenty of uh, negative adjectives that you could uh, call him, you know, thug and, bloodthirsty and all those kind of things. And those are all accurate, but I think calling him a madman and, and, and positioning this move as, you know, just the folly of a crazy person, I think is a real misread of the situation. And I think it's a dangerous misread of the situation that really, you know, potentially leads us off a, a path that uh, is not productive for, for, you know, certainly for us and probably not for the free world. So, Ryan, uh, you're a markets guy, but we're going to go way beyond that because you can talk about grain markets every day of your life and your real career. And uh, we're recording this now, dear listener, on Sunday, February 27th, so that you know to put this in perspective. So we can talk about what markets are doing, but that, of course, changes because the markets are always in motion. So instead of that, we're going to talk about the word that you used, contagion. Uh, There was a time back in, and again, you've got to go and learn your history. We allegedly, the United States of America entered Vietnam in the early 60s, late 50s, even with advisors, which is a fancy word for military. Um, We put advisors there because we were concerned about creeping communism. And uh, the idea was that we were going to contain the creeping communism over there uh, in, in Asia and not let it, you know, get all the way down to Southeast Asia. Well, it didn't really work. 
But you used the word contagion, which reminded me a bit of creeping communism. But this is a different deal because it's actually more about dominance, not just about a political system. Tell me. About yeah. That. And, 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 and I mean, the, the creeping communism is a that's a that's a topic we can run for another. I mean, a whole different two hour special <laughs> about uh, about what's going on. I mean, and Todd, you're exactly right. This is this, you know, water doesn't just flash boil. You know, it heats up and then you finally see the bubbles start to bubble to the top. And that's just finally what we've seen. This has been heating up for years. Right. And this is not a this unfortunate series of events should not be a surprise to anybody because, I mean, he's he's telegraphed this for a very, very long time from a from a market's perspective. I want everybody that's listening to this that's an American to realize that what is taking place on the world stage, it's a lot worse for a lot of other people in the world than it is those of us here in the U.S. And then I'll also say North America because of our friends in uh, Canada and Mexico as well. Um, we are, and, and from a contagion standpoint, we are in a position as the United States to weather the storm of contagion better than a lot of other places due to our lack of dependence on other nations for oil, for example, right? Damien, I, uh, I posted something from the EIA website uh, to you in an email, and if you can put that in the podcast notes there, you know, the headlines are saying, oh, we are dependent, uh, you know, as a nation because one of every 12 barrels of oil is imported from into the U.S. is from Russia. Well, yeah, that might sound like a lot when you lead, read the headline, but when you look at how little that really truly is. That's, that's not a, that's not a big deal for us here in the U S it's yeah, it's not great, but you can turn a few wells on in North Dakota and we're fine. Um, from an ag standpoint though, longer term, what does this mean with the country that we have become completely dependent on as far as the ag markets are concerned, which is China. Right. And does this conflict that's bubbled over here between Russia and Ukraine, does this give China permission to go invade Taiwan? Okay. If this gets to be the issue, then we have a much, much bigger problem on our hands because all of the equipment, all of the, the chips is a big issue. And then what happens if they shut us off as an export partner and we are back in the trade war, which we just got out of. And it, it, what, what happens if we're back in there? And it's not even technically called a trade war this time. It's just two communist buddies getting together and saying, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to do this on our own. And we as Americans with our short attention spans, we think they can't do that. They can't survive without us. Bullshit. So you mean that I mean, you know, wait a minute, I want to get this straight, Brian. You're saying that Will Ferrell uh, taking out his iPhone and humming the tune of John Lennon songs isn't going to make us not dependent on uh, China and who is our adversary. That's amazing. The word well, I, haven't seen, I haven't seen that. And that's too bad. Cause I, cause I really like Will Ferrell. So, uh, and <laughs> yeah. we can find some other celebrity that we can all, you know, jump on board with hating. If you could jump on, find somebody else. I really want to like that guy. Yeah, I, I wanted to as well, but I don't know. So uh, Joy Behar, I guess we can go with. Um, the contagion word is a really good word because, you know, I look at the Wall Street every day and, you know, they seem to have some of this, but the Amer average American isn't 
caught up and even the average agricultural person, unfortunately, I've been sounding the anti-China alarm for a long time. Todd and I recorded a, a podcast about a year ago where I basically was anti-China and here's the reasons why. And then Todd, of course, is a communist sympathizer. Um, he's what you would have called uh, a Tory uh, back in the United States of America was uh, revolting oh. against England. Whoa, <laughs> shots fired. Todd gets <laughs> Todd gets the reality that we are dependent on them. And unfortunately, it is, it is a really bad situation for ag because as soon as this thing was going, first off, you said he's been telegraphing it. I find it interesting that the American people... If a bully is standing there with a bat and he keeps saying, when this little kid comes walking down here, it's got a million dollars in his pocket. I'm going to beat the shit out of him and take his money. And it, for a, like a month for a, Putin had the Russian troops staging outside of Ukraine, I think, starting in December. <laughs> it's like, what, what did you think? What did you think this was? So anyway, it was not only telegraphed, it was essentially announced like, hey, we're going to go ahead and do this. And and then what do we say? Well, if you do that. We'll we'll not let you complete a pipeline that you already don't have completed. I mean, come on. But the contagion. Well, I, I was I was living in Russia back in 2006 to 2008. And towards the end of my time in Russia is when uh, Putin invaded uh, Georgia at the time. Right. And so, you know, we had all this same consternation about I can't believe he's doing this. And this is crazy. And what is the West going to do? It turned out they did literally nothing. Um, you know, and so we had all that discussion. That was in 2008. Yeah. And, you know, here we are in 2022, you know, and what happened in between there then and now was, you know, the incursion in Crimea. And, you know, and so, you know, this has been building like uh, like Ryan mentioned, you know, that pot's been boiling for quite some time. And the fact that we're just completely shocked, it's just it's staggering. And, you know, I can understand maybe if we're a little bit surprised that he decided to go with a full on invasion as opposed to a, you know, pinprick, you know, incursions or something like that. But the, the fact that we're just shocked that he decided to invade Ukraine is just mind boggling. Right. But about how many things have we as Americans picked up and laid down since 2008? Like, I mean, for God's sakes, Tiger King was popular in America. I mean, what the fuck does that say about us? You know, I mean, and all of this stuff is actually happening. And I mean, they've been living in this state of heightened awareness for, well, what date was that when, uh, when the Georgian invasion took place, Todd? Eight, nine. I think it was 2008. Yeah. 2008. Right. I mean, how many, how many things have we seen come and go, uh, since then. Well, well, I think we should also point out that if uh, if an American even saw on the Today Show that uh, Russia invaded Georgia, they'd say, man, I never made it to Atlanta. So anyway, I think we're talking about I, that. That's I mean, that's the sadder part. But again, yeah. another another two hour conversation. It's a sad commentary day. about the American populace and their ignorance. But let's talk about the agricultural situation. I, as soon as this was going on, said to anybody that would listen, China does the Taiwan thing next. I've been telling my audiences that, you know what? Said we have not just one uh, corollary or one correlation, if you will, to Nazi Germany, we have two. Uh, in 1936, if you know your history, uh, Germany and Adolf Hitler hosted the 
Summer Olympics in Berlin. And essentially it was a coming out party for what the National Socialist Party, the Nazis, had done. Adolf Hitler wanted to show to the world as a showcase, we are the dominant world power economically, militarily, and we also are the master race. Now, one little bad thing happened. A guy named Jesse Owens, a black American, uh, humiliated Adolf Hitler because he went out and beat the shit out of the Nazis in the Olympics. But Essentially, it was 1936, and it was very militarized. It was essentially what we just saw in Beijing. And where do we see it before that? Sochi. These two countries essentially have so much in common with what we saw in Nazi Germany in the 1930s. We're going to prove that we are the new world power. We're going to prove that there is a reset. We're going to all of this sort of thing, military uh, posturing propaganda, using a global media, using a global Olympics, all this kind of stuff. As soon as this Ukrainians are going, I said, yeah, now Taiwan is next up. Trust me, Taiwan is next up. China is going to see weak Western leaders roll over and say, great. So this is a real live game of risk being played by these two countries that obviously want to replace the United States of America. They do not want to be our customer. They don't want to be second fiddle behind us. They want to replace us. China's in a more strong position to do that. As we just heard the other day on our business of ag group, the Russia GDP, the Russian economy is less than one-tenth of the United States GDP. The Russian economy is less than one-tenth of what ours is. But China, on the other hand, is getting closer every day to having our GDP. So I see the China thing being the contagion that we all are not concerned enough about. Go. Odd bed, odd bed fellows, but uh, they could sure use each other. China's short on resources. Russia's long on resources. There's another yeah. angle on this also. And I want to hear it from Todd because he lived there and he also is, is seeing this from a different perspective. Much of Ukraine, uh, the article I read, 45% of their uh, GDP was based on agricultural exports. Now, uh, maybe you've read something different, but the number I saw was you're talking about damn near half of their economy was essentially because of agricultural exports. Their number uh, one, two or three customer in any given commodity tended to be China. Strange bedfellows, but because Putin is a former KGB agent that's also very militarily minded, you control your you control your bedfellow and their food. Now you've really got a more agreeable bedfellow, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so he's happy to work with China as long as he has the upper hand. He didn't have because his economy is way smaller than theirs. But now he's going to control the food flow from Ukraine to China. Ah, China becomes a lot more agreeable and works into Putin's agenda. Todd. Yeah. So so I think maybe just really quickly, just to make sure that people understand the scope of. Ukraine and and also Russia's role in the global agriculture export market. Uh, I just got a few numbers here just to share you share with you. They're number one in global exports of sunflower meal, sunflower oil. Uh, Russia's number two. So uh, barley, uh, Ukraine is number four. Russia's number two. Uh, corn. This will surprise some people. Uh, Ukraine is number four. Russia's number six. Corn. Um, wheat exports, uh, Ukraine is number five and Russia is number one. Are those, so export, wheat, are, are those export rankings or production rankings? Those are exports. Yeah, okay. exports. Number four, um, export, and, number four exporter of corn in the world is Ukraine. And, they're, right. and principally, I believe the article I read, most of that does go to China. Uh, yeah, a lot of that goes to China. Um, uh, what doesn't mostly goes to the Middle East. 
Um, and, and so, you know, if you just look at wheat and there's been a lot of discussion of wheat, it's not just about wheat, but together Russia and Ukraine account for about 30% of total, total global uh, wheat exports. And so, you know, these are huge numbers. The other thing from an ag perspective that we've got to keep in mind here is the role of Russia and Ukraine, mainly Russia, but a little bit Ukraine in terms of, uh, uh, the production and export of fertilizer. So we all know we've been talking about this on the business of ag success group, you know, fertilizer prices are already what five to seven times what they were this time last year. Um, and what we're looking at is Russia is the number two exporter of nitrogen based fertilizers behind China. Um, a lot of the runoff that we've seen recently is because of issues in China. And so now we're having issues in, in Russia and they're the number two producer or exporter of nitrogen based fertilizers. And they're the number one exporter of potash based uh, fertilizers as well. And so, you know, that could be where we really see a big hit, even for, you know, you know, food independent countries is a uh, pretty significant impact in terms of production costs. So, you know, this really does have a major impact in terms of global uh, the global agriculture industry. And I mean, those are just just really big numbers and the combination of sanctions against Russia and then the direct disruption of production that we're obviously going to see um, in Ukraine. Um, we've got some real exposure there. Right. And so, you know, the, the listeners of this podcast are a there are an ag group that's of the a bit more intelligent class. Right. So they understand margin. Right. Uh, margin on farm. And that is the two, three, four, five year outlook that actually has me concerned is if we lose China as the trading partner, revenues go down. But if we lose the supply base of everything that Todd just discussed, those costs go up. Right. What happens to the margin on farm? That's the that's the risk that is sitting out here, not necessarily for 2022, because I think we're good. I think uh, not good. We're, we're in a spot where there was enough slack in the supply chain previous to this, where all of those goods were secured to plant a very good crop here. Mm. What about 23, 24, 25? You know, those are the, those are the, those are the, the timelines that I would be looking at as a potential issue because we as Americans are far less. Um, well, I guess I'll put it this way. Communists are stubborn. They will they will stick this out for three, five, seven years. I mean, it's that's their commitment to the cause. And yeah, it could be a total, it could be a total gong show over there, but they'll stick with it because they believe in the cause. And that's something that that's that's the bigger concern for me is not 2022. What about three, four, 23, four, five, and six? I like the idea that you I, I, um brought up the whole squeeze on margin, not because of uh, sales. Uh, I got no. into it a few years ago with someone and it was because this person's ideology just was anti-Trump and they kept talking about how the trade war made it so that uh, we weren't selling soybeans and the bean, bean price was low. And I said, would well, you realize that this is a global market? Maybe bean prices are low because they're low everywhere because there's enough soybeans that therefore the supply has pushed down the price because demand has remained constant. No, it's because China's not buying our beans. I said, do you think that they just stopped eating? Do you think that uh, 1.4 billion people just stopped eating? And that's, I said, 
you realize they're not buying ours, but they're buying soybeans still. So they're coming from somewhere, call it Argentina or Brazil. Then therefore, wherever their soybeans from Brazil are not going, ours would go. Well, anyway, uh, this is- But that's a small, but that's a, that's a much smaller piece of the market that, I mean, that's like saying, oh, I'm going to trade Walmart for uh, the use, like, so if you're building widgets, right? I'm going to say, I don't want Walmart to sell my trinkets. I'm going to sell only a hardware Hank. Yeah. Right. I mean that there's such a big difference between how big China is for a demand source than ROTW, which is rest of the world. And no, I got that. I got that. What I'm saying yeah. is soybean prices weren't low because China stopped eating soybeans is because there were plenty they of stopped soybeans. buying ours. They were buying from somewhere. So then therefore whatever vacuum right. that created ours would go there. So all of a sudden, right. so the point is what we get concerned about in ag is we get, we think somehow if, China doesn't buy our stuff that therefore they just aren't buying it at all or they're buying it somewhere else. And therefore there's no market for it. Well, the reality is whether they buy from us or buy from Brazil, the point is the global marketplace. What we should be concerned more with than China going away as a customer, frankly, is China going away as a supplier, which frankly, we should be concerned about it because we need to make it happen. Todd just talked about a lot of different stuff there on those export things. What our bigger concern and your point, Ryan, is not 2022, it's 2024, five, six. Because this, this, this stuff takes a long time to work itself out. I the mean, glyphosate it just, thing, it does. the most used herbicide on the planet is glyphosate. Dear listener, if you don't know what that is because you're an ag person, but you're not on the chemistry side, that's Roundup, okay? It has gone up by about five times. It was like 12 to $13 a gallon a year ago. It's around 50 to $60, depending on who you talk to right now. So we're talking about four and five, five and a half times up, depending. China is a major manufacturer of generic glyphosate, generic Roundup glyphosate. Um, this is, this is going to have crinkles all down the thing. So again, it's not about where they go away as a customer, because as long as they still exist, they're a global customer, wherever, if they buy their crap from somewhere else, we can just fill wherever they're not buying from. Right. So the point is it's the supply that we get from them that I think is our bigger concern. And by the way, they would love nothing more than to keep us not only as a customer, but also as a captive customer. Todd. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. And, and I think that's, that's really what we need to begin to start to try to evaluate is that, you know, this balance is starting to shift. You know, it's not entirely clear yet if China is going to take that uh, position, but it's certainly rational and it certainly should not surprise us. Um, there's a lot of reasons why they should and could cooperate with Russia. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, it may seem like strange bedfellows, but it's really not in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of the things that you know, China needs, Russia has, and a lot of things that, that Russia needs, China has. And so it's a very uh, rational partnership there. And so far, what we have seen for sure is China has been very hesitant to criticize uh, Russian actions in Ukraine. So that could change. Um, but so far, they seem to be uh, definitely standing on the sidelines, both officially and unofficially, and closely watching how the West reacts to what what's going on in Ukraine. So it'll be really interesting to see. And I'm not saying that that you know that that path that we've been alluding to is going to happen, but it certainly could happen. And if it does, if we're surprised, then shame on us. You know. So we're really looking at 
what I think ultimately is a sort of a three pronged issue that we need to be keeping an eye on. It's the ag and food aspect that we've already talked about. The next is the energy aspects of what's going on right now in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, the EU is extremely dependent on Russian oil and gas, and especially on the gas side, because most of that gas moves through a pipeline. It's really difficult to shift uh, production around and just move stuff. I mean, on the oil side, you know, we've got an infrastructure, the ability to move that. You know, maybe it gets more expensive or whatever, but we can move that oil around. That gas, it kind of goes where it has to go. And so, you, you know, Russia really has Europe over a barrel and there's not much they can do about it from an energy standpoint. I mean, they could turn on some of those nuclear plants in Germany that they switched off a few years ago. But, you know, that's really a drop in the bucket anyway. And so that's, you know, that's really where this power shift is, is happening. And it's really hamstringing the West's efforts to make these sanctions hurt because they can't hurt Russia, really hurt Russia without really hurting Europe. And so that's the second of the three prongs. And then if China becomes involved and China takes, decides to take the lead um, and, and do something with uh, Taiwan or withdraw from, you know, global trade to some degree, then you've got issues around technology and just general manufacturing that can be really disruptive. And again, that's going to affect everybody. And And there's not a lot of solutions that are good in the short term uh, to fixing that problem. I mean, what we've built up in our dependence on Chinese manufacturing does not go away in a year or two. It's, that's the it's thing that I guess I, that's, that is the biggie right there where I think the average American has no clue. And even a bunch of people in ag don't fully grasp this. It, the Russian control of Europe based on natural gas, oil, etc. Basically, the, if you want to turn your thermostat up or turn your light switch on in Germany, you need Russia. And that's where Russia is so smartly <laughs> they didn't win World War II uh, or get the, the dominance quite that they wanted because, remember, Stalin wanted to have Germany. But by golly, they kind of won on this front. Well, here's the deal. China has us in the same situation that Russia has Europe on energy. We need them to make uh, a bunch of our inputs. Uh, before we started recording, uh, Ryan mentioned lysine, a feed ingredient. A, a it's a complex protein, right? Or it's a, a builder of complex proteins for feed. Things like feed ingredients and chemistry that China has us essentially the way Russia has Eastern Europe. You want to turn your thermostat up or turn your light switch on? You need Russia. And unfortunately, China has us this way. So I see the bigger implications. And that's why I continue to go back to the word contagion. Ryan, am I right? Are we screwed? No. Uh, as as North America, I'd say no, because um, I don't have chips. I don't have chips for my pickup truck in Fort Wayne, Indiana, by my farm. I don't have chips. There's pickup trucks in right. all over the place. Right. But so we look at the energy situation of the early 2000s here in the U.S. Everybody was certain that we were dependent upon foreign oil uh, for our energy base. Right. Because there was a story that was sold to us that we got all of so much oil from uh, we got so much oil from the Middle East and that the Middle East essentially owned us because of our dependence upon their energy. Um, and now you look at what the supply base of energy here in the U.S. really, truly looks like, like we've diversified the supplier base in that we can do it again with this. It's going to take longer than what most of us imagine. But. There's all, and it's also not going to be a silver bullet 
there's going to be a portfolio of solutions that come up and six, seven years from now, North America, from an energy standpoint, is going to be fine. The chips shortage situation, uh, this is something that has been exposed here uh, two years ago because of COVID. And so some solutions are already starting to pick up steam. Um, didn't, didn't the U.S. government just pass a bill uh, for manufacturing more uh, chips here domestically? I mean, it's, it's not, there's not going to be one thing that comes in and solves this problem. But we as Americans are very good at coming up with portfolios of solutions. Um, so for the North American issues, I think, are different than European issues. I mean, they are massively dependent upon those gas supplies, right, and the manufacturing over there. It's a much different story over there. So, you know, what it's, a, it's not a linear answer of are we screwed yeah, we're, we're screwed, but it's in, it's not in one like sledgehammer effect. It's a bunch of different tiny little pinpricks that we're going to have to start solving these things one at a time. And it comes down to diversification of supplier base. It comes down to diversification of customer base with all of this stuff. Um, and we've done that before. It takes time to do that again, but we've got to get, we got to get very serious because the pain on this is going to last longer than a two-year issue that was created by but like the lysine situation, Todd, you've forgotten more about that product than I'll ever know, right? But this is, this is essentially the cost of cheap. Does that make sense? Yeah. And by the way, we've, we've, we, I, I can drive you through the, the, the side of Huntington County that used to, uh, the part of my hometown that used to have factories and say, this is the downside of cheap. Also, I got a, I got a class of people now that used to be factory workers, fairly unskilled factory workers that now are the second generation of being on welfare. We just outsourced our manufacturing, but we also insourced uh, essentially um, a, a bunch of new welfare recipients because they're not this whole thing, you know, uh, Oh, I need more job training. There are certain people that are really good at taking uh, ceiling tiles and putting them in boxes. That's the factory that I worked in. You're not going to train a ceiling tile box stuffer into being a nuclear engineer. It just doesn't happen. And it's not. You no, know, and, and, and there's also just, a dis I mean, that, that solution is so much more difficult because the, the displacement, like the, the workers that are available here in Minneapolis that are sitting there collecting a check. I mean, it's not like they're going to, you know, go out three hours from, you know, west of town here and go help with sugar beet harvest. I mean, that's not, that's not how that works. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, at least in the short term, but I mean, there's stuff there that's like, I, I am not as, I am not as pessimistic about America's uh, fate in this thing as I am, uh, as I am concerned about what happens in Europe and lots of the rest of the world. Right. So, well, and I, and I, I think that the, the real, uh, concern there is is that the u.s withdraws you know continues to withdraw from the global stage and then what impact does that have on the rest of the world i, I agree mm -hmm. with ryan i'm pretty optimistic we're, we're actually the u.s is pretty well positioned to deal with you know what we're talking about this new world order or whatever we're going to call this uh, we're in pretty good shape for ourselves but we are this is all happening in the context of a deglobalization that was already happening, right? Where, where, you know, America's role in the world is becoming, you know, not nearly as dominant as it has been in the past. And this could speed that process up. And so if you're one of our quote unquote allies in, 
Asia or in the, you know, our one ally in the Middle East or certainly in Europe. I mean, you've got to be concerned about this, this shift. You know, I think the U.S. is probably OK. North America is probably OK. But Europe is not well positioned. Our allies in Asia are not well positioned for this. No. And as we withdraw, that's going to create a vacuum. And like I said on uh, on uh, social media the other day, those vacuums don't tend to get filled by friendly people. No, they and they get filled no. very pr- quickly. A couple of things, Todd. First off, who's our one ally in the Middle East? Just as your from your standpoint, Israel. Okay, I, I assume that's what you're going with. So, a country of three million people in, in a in a powder keg. So, it's a nice little it's a nice little ally, but it doesn't do us a whole hell of a lot of good, frankly speaking, in terms of population base, ports, infrastructure, manufacturing, etc. Um, another thing you pointed out there was that uh, the the vacuum that is created, and this is the problem. Uh, you both said you're op- you're optimistic, just so that the listeners don't think I'm a negative Nancy. I'm optimistic also about America's agricultural and productive ability from a manufacturing, from an ingenuity, from a uh, concept of just our our thinking. You know, look at the the Silicon Valley from a capital standpoint. There's so much venture capital hanging around here. I'm optimistic for those reasons. I am not optimistic when I look at our leadership situation. So that is what. Oh, yeah. And that was that was going to be my next comment is all of these solutions are going to require leadership. And, yeah, and, not, a, and not a leadership that thinks that, that, is, that is when John Kerry, the climate czar, career politician, horsehead John Kerry, married a trust fund woman, believes that somehow the most important aspect of what's happening in Ukraine needs to go back to climate change. I'm like, good God, what, what, what do you know? This is like, this is like, you know, the heart attack victim is laying on the floor and you're concerned about whether his tie is straight. I mean, no, no, we got bigger things to, con- to concern ourselves with. Well, and right. I think that's yeah. not really a it's not really a political issue, you know. I mean, do we really think we'd be in a lot different spot right now if Mitt Romney had won or if John McCain had won? I mean, I think, you know, what we're seeing here and the real the real disadvantage that we have, if you want to try to find a, a way to be negative about the U.S. over the next decade or so, we have a massive amount of debt and absolutely zero political will to address that issue. And that's both sides of the aisle. I mean, we were talking about in the business of ag success group, somebody brought up the fact that the GDP in Russia was, you know, something like one tenth. I think what uh, uh, Damien said, it's roughly the size of Florida, right. In terms of GDP, but, you know, and then the U S has, you know, so they have like a 1.2 trillion or something. Uh, 1.7 trillion dollars is the Russian economy and ours is a touch over 20. So like ours right. is like 20 to 21 trillion dollar economy. And so, and so at the same time though, and, and so that, that really is an important context for people to understand. Yes, but at the is. same time, we have almost $30 trillion in debt and Russia has 600 billion in foreign cash reserves. Mm-hmm. So they've got basically one third, of their entire GDP in, in, in foreign cash reserves. So that's, you know, us dollars, yen, uh, yuan gold, you know, basically 600, a big giant stack of $600 billion in cash. And we're indebted, you know, at 119% of our GDP. They, they have a, a national debt of around 19% of their GDP. They can pay off their national debt tomorrow three times over with their cash reserves. So, I mean, that's, that's something that, that should be a concern from a, 
you know, quote unquote political standpoint, you know, we are, we are in a, in a bad spot there. And that's our biggest, you know, if you want to look at our soft underbelly, it's our debt and more importantly, our unwillingness to address it. Right. And so I want to, uh, you know, kind of speaking of leadership, Damien, I know you're the leader of this podcast, but I want to go ahead and assume a leadership role here on this. And, uh, kind of get us back to a, a spot to where, cause we can go down this debt rabbit hole and we can stay down it. And, and we can start cussing about the politicians and stuff like that. But Todd, your points of bringing up what Russia's financial position is versus our financial position is people definitely need to be looking into that as to what that truly means and how long they can hang on, on something like this. Um, but I do want to say that the three of us in this podcast, I don't think there's anything that the three of us can do to address today's national debt problems. So, but like from your guys' chairs, what are a couple of things that you, that we can do to like bring awareness or start doing something? Because if we start addressing this from a national debt issue, that's the equivalent of trying to boil the ocean and then we'll never make any progress anywhere. So what are you guys seeing as some like, ways that we can do something the listeners of this podcast can actually do something to start with creating solutions around this, what I perceive to be a long-term problem. Long-term problem that we are dependent. I'd say I worry less about the customer base because I think that the, some of the trade alliances are already happening. I'd go back to the thing that Todd mentioned that globally we have an issue that uh, our, our allies are going to be, gobbled by our adversaries and principally i think our adversaries are russia and china and then to a lesser degree iran and north korea the reason i say to a lesser degree is because they don't they're not quite as well armed and they certainly don't have the economic might that china does and then russia um or even the military that russia has um what do i think i think that we need to as an industry there's somebody listening right now uh because i get as you said we get some pretty intelligent uh, agricultural professionals that listen to this and they're saying you know what, maybe it's incumbent upon me to start diversifying suppliers. And, uh, you know, we went to China, we were lulled in. And as you use the term, the high price of cheap goods, the high price of cheap labor, there's a high price to all this stuff. And we're seeing it now when glyphosate's up five times year over year, there's a high price to being dependent on China. So diversification of suppliers is, I think, what uh, maybe that I can't do because I don't make the purchase decisions for inert ingredients that go into feed. But I believe that we are going to have to, in rapid order, reset the supply uh, base. And uh, and that begins by yanking stuff out of China. And if there is a higher cost to it, they're going to say, I can't do that. I can't do that because my competitor will stay with China. And that might be true, but where the high price, again, a higher price might actually be justifiable is then when you can get stuff that your competitor cannot. And we're going to get to Mm -hmm. where China starts not only upping the prices, they just start fixing supply or even uh, uh, cutting us off. They've they've started it. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's, I mean, look at the port situation. Look at, I mean, yeah. Talk to anybody that's uh, de- looking for something right now. I don't care if you're trying to buy a, a a ranger for your farm tractor, a pickup. I mean, anything like that. I mean, just look at how, I mean, that's, that's, that's happened, right? I mean, we are, we are already in the, 
third or fourth inning of the game on that yeah. one. So, yeah, and yeah. they're and they're already they're already essentially flexing their muscle and shorting us on supply. By the way, you right. asked what we would do, and I gave you an answer. Todd hasn't yet. I would like to also just throw this out there: the man lived in Russia for two years. He tends to be somewhat um, critical of my pro-America agenda. Do you think he's a Russian spy? Do you think that Todd might actually be some kind of a Russian spy? Todd, 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 I'm going to go ahead and spring this one on you to go ahead and answer this question so that we can gauge your reaction quickly. Bourbon or vodka? <laughs> Bourbon. All right. It's American enough for me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I agree. I, I think that, that from an industry perspective, we need to be really sitting around thinking about this potential new world order where do we need this manufacturing to be? Who do we want to be dependent on? Who are we okay being dependent on? And what strategic commodities can we not afford to be dependent on anyone for? So we need to take those, reshore those. You know, we need to, you know, it's a combination of reshoring some of this stuff. And that's going to be you know, some of the more strategically important commodities. And then we need to be really careful about who our, partners are going to be and not to be too dependent on any of those partners. Right. So again, it gets back to that diversification rehoming some of that reshoring some of that uh, really critical uh, manufacturing capability. Um, you know, some of the stuff we've talked about, you know, anything to do with food, you know, you don't want to be really dependent on anybody um, in terms of, of food ingredients. So if that means, you know, manufacturing uh, lysine, if that means manufacturing more nitrogen-based fertilizers here, if that means, you know, some of those types of things. And then let's be really careful and really strategic about diversifying amongst other uh, potential suppliers. And quite frankly, I would put a big focus on Latin America. Um, I, I'm a little nervous about any Asian suppliers just because of the potential for China to really exert their influence. Um, in that region. And, and I'm just pretty, pretty negative on Europe's entire situation. And so I think really, I would really focus there um, in terms of Latin America on potential suppliers. And I think really the, the focus needs to be in terms of where do we get new consumers? We need to be focused on Africa. Um, that's really the last frontier in terms of you know, real growth potential. We've talked a lot about demographic issues. That's the only part of the world that is projected to continue to grow its population over the next, you know, 80 years or so. And so we really need to be thinking about, you know, what role do we play in Africa? That's a space that certainly China's expressed interest in, uh, Russia's expressed interest in. Uh, we need to figure out how we're going to play there. So from a strategic standpoint, from an industry standpoint, looking for consumers, it makes sense to go to the, the uh, continent in the world. that is the only one that continues to grow. Uh, okay. And as usual, I have to, as usual, I have to disagree with Todd. Uh, while it oh, might have the only above. Shocking report here. Yeah, right. The only fertility rate that's above 2.1, as you and I have talked about, is in Africa. That is true. But also they have essentially I think there's more money hanging around in the country of Mexico than there might be in the entire south half of the of the of the continent of Africa. Uh, Russia and China's play in Africa has little to do with gaining customers. It's just a simple matter of colonialism or economic colonialism going and extracting their resources. They don't really care about them as customers. They care about them as a supply for resources. So I would say that our energy would be better applied in cultivating 
uh, trade deals with countries that have money, which most of African countries do not to be our customers. So while I don't disagree with you about that, it's still got a little growth potential or do I, I don't disagree that the, those two combinations of Russia and China are going there. They're not going there for, to gain customers they are going there to extract resources. Um, I don't really think that Todd's a Russian spy, Ryan. Uh, but uh, I mean, because he did pass the test. So, I mean, we, yeah. So just because okay. he drinks bourbon rather than Stolik Naya, you think that that means he's not a commie. That's interesting. Uh, I, mean, closing I can't th- go into the whole thing here, but uh, yeah. Closing yeah. thoughts, closing thoughts on all this. We said we we're going to talk about what Russia, Ukraine means for American ag, but really it's for the whole globe. And we, we didn't stay as much just on ag because this is a much larger issue than just ag. Um, Closing thoughts. Uh, you're the markets guy. I, I, we said we were going to talk about pure markets because everybody that cares about that has the markets on their phone. Right. Closing thoughts. I, well, and, and no, and no commodity analyst can tell you what corn is going to be worth Tuesday afternoon within 25 cents right now. Anyway, right. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a hard, a hard call to make. Uh, so for me, you know, Predictive indicators is what we're looking at here for as you know, when we're doing market analysis, what I'm going to tell you, what I, what I think is something that's going to be very important. What I'm going to tell my clients is watch the Chinese banking systems reaction. See if, if the Chinese banking system pulls away from Russia, well, that will show that their support for Russia isn't really as strong as what maybe some of the communist headline grabbers will lead you to believe. So watch the Chinese banking system, because right now the Chinese banking system is not supporting this move by Putin. So that is going to be something that I'm going to be watching and how those private banks in China react to this whole situation as to what China's support for Russia actually looks like. Right. Um, so that's going to be the predictive indicator for me for the next uh, several weeks is how is the banking system in China handling all of this? And then that will be able to see how how long this is going to be just a Putin thing or if this is going to be a Putin slash Chinese uh, issue. So that's my that's my closing comment is watch what those banks do, because that's going to be more significant than what the Communist Party in China says. Does that make sense? Yes. Close it. Yes. Because it's it, it, basically you just said something we all know the three of us do follow the money, watch what the money does, watch what the money does, watch what the money does, because that's going to be indicative. Todd, your closing thought. Yeah. So I, I think the main thing that I would encourage people to think about is, is what is the next three to four months look like? I think one of the things that we haven't talked about and, 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 you know, obviously the news is very dynamic, but it seems clear to me, and I'm not a military analyst in any way, shape or form, but it seems clear to me that the Russians were a bit surprised at the vigorous uh, response that they've received so far from the Ukrainians. Uh, and so I think the Russians may be in for a more protracted battle for Ukraine than what they anticipated. And so this thing may stretch out uh, further than, than what we thought. And so that's going to have um, maybe a little bit different impact than, than what a lot of people were thinking. So if you think about it, we're about a week into this thing. And a week ago, the smartest people in the world 
thought that China was going to step in and stop this thing from happening completely. Right. And then just say, listen, you need, you need to, you know, we'll help you try to, you know, install a puppet regime in Ukraine through, you know, quote unquote, peaceful means, you know, or maybe we'll do some minor incursions here and there to try to establish the, the, uh, the pretenses for making the uh, regime change or whatever that is. And here we are a week later and it looks like we're in for a really bloody battle um, in Ukraine and for a, a protracted occupation, even after they uh, overtake the country. So um, I think, you know, we need to keep in mind, this is a very dynamic situation. And so far we haven't had any good news in terms of, you know, this being quickly resolved. So uh, I'd keep an open mind and just realize that we're going to have some pretty significant disruptions over the next, you know, three to four months for sure. And probably much longer than that. My closing thoughts are we've been afforded several really good, loud wake up calls in the last couple of years. The COVID thing, gave us a wake up call about how uh, there was no slack in our supply chain uh, that uh, we were dependent on a couple of large meat companies. I mean, you go on and on about the lessons from that. Um, we also saw a consumer base that panicked and we never saw in the history of our lives, never saw vacant shelves. You know, it's like, wow, there's some, there's some wake up call here. It means that maybe, well, I don't believe our food supply, uh, our food system is broken by any means. It means that there's a few little, um, shall we say, vulnerabilities. Now we are seeing in fast fashion um, uh, another wake up call. First off, about how quickly a country of only, what, 220 million people, I think Russia is, um, is going to. Less than that, 140. Okay. Okay. The Soviet Union was like 250 or something, I think. Okay. So since the dismantling of it, so it's 140. In fast fashion, we're seeing how quickly we can throw the entire global marketplace into a topsy-turvy situation. And so this is a good wake-up call. And it's uh, right after the Russia-Ukraine thing has to be what China is and then what that means. It's a good time for us to re-examine our relationship. We love Manag. You know, China's been really good for low-level consumers of cheap manufactured goods and very good for agriculture. It's actually not been good for a lot of other aspects of America. So good wake up. Call. And, and, and so, and, and, and let's address the wake up call differently as America this time, because the wake up call during COVID, one of the takeaways was we hoard toilet paper. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if that's going to be our call to action and how we're going to answer this is by hoarding toilet paper. I mean, let's, I mean, uh, <laughs> let's, let's up our game here, folks. Yeah. And, and we as an industry, like I said, I think the bigger thing is uh, weaning ourselves off the China teat is uh, probably mm-hmm. the wake up call that I'm hearing from this. And it's interesting because the average person doesn't understand why Russia invading Ukraine would make me say that it's time for us to more than to more than us to realize that. But it's exposing one of our great vulnerabilities. And I apologize to you, Damien, if you are a toilet paper hoarder. I didn't mean to offend you. Yeah, I, I'm not a toilet paper hoarder. Um, for the first time in my life, I'm probably like most of you. I had to sit there and actually think, how much toilet paper do we go through? We, you know, then it, <laughs> like where you're like, we had to, for the first time in your life, you actually had to think about your rationing. Oh, how many rolls do we need per week in the Mason household? So um, I would say uh, his name is Ryan Moe. He's with Stonex Financial. If they want to find you, Ryan, where do they find you? Because you're a smart dude with lots to say. Uh, yeah, just Ryan Moe at stonex.com is uh, my email address. And I'm on 
uh, Twitter, not all that frequently, but yeah, that's the email is probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. And so. you can always find him through me because he's a member of the Business of Ag Success Group, as you should be. Um, Which other, other people should join because that is that is a very valuable hour every couple of weeks. It really yeah, is. It is. I appreciate you saying that. My co-host with the Business of Ag Success Group, of course, is Todd Thurman. He's also a frequent guest here. He's a bit of a mommy boy, but you know what? We still love him, and uh, and, and he's he's become my he's become my buddy and my partner. Uh, so anyway, Todd is the proprietor and founder of Swine Techs uh, Swine Consulting. He also does public speaking. If you need somebody that can talk about uh, agriculture stuff in a smart way, particularly some of his specialty areas, I would say are on things like supply chains, et cetera. Todd, Todd, if they want to find you, where they find you? Uh, probably the best place to go is the website, uh, www.swinetex.com. It's S-W-I-N-E-T-E-X.com. And all my contact information and uh, lots of information is there. So. Play on play on the words. He's a Texas guy and tags like tech. Ah, he's a smart dude. Anyway, so it's Todd Thurman. It's Ryan Most, Damian Mason. Uh, reminding you also, check out the great stuff we're doing over there at Extreme Ag, the content I'm creating. If you want uh, to up your farming game, look at what the boys at Ext- uh, Extreme Ag are doing. Product trials, business podcast where we're creating all sorts of on-farm practices and and things that you can learn from. So go and check out extremeag.farm. Till next time. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. Till next time at the Business of Agriculture. This episode of the Business of Agriculture was brought to you by Land Trust. Landowners just like you are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use. Millions of recreators actively seek wide open spaces for bird watching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Owners of farm and ranch properties are partnering with Recreation Access Network Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit landtrust.com/boa as in business of agriculture to learn more. That's landtrust.com slash B-O-A.